The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 5, 1 through 11. Please stand in reverence for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you are younger. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. <clears throat> Close yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, friends and family, thank you for gathering. Uh, this is a, a big day in the life of our church. It's in the, a big day in the lives of a few of our families. And as our church family is the family of God, this summer, we're, we're looking at a series called Transformed that's pulled from our vision. We want to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. And one of the things we believe and what we're convinced about in God's work in the world through his church is that he is bringing about transformation through, through his church. He, he brings it about in lives individually. And those lives gather, they begin to impact groups like families and communities. And as communities and families are impacted, it begins to spread and, and, and influence and impact the world. And that's the type of church we want to be. Uh, it, it's the type of church we also know that we're not fully as we ought to be. And so we come this morning and, and, and we're looking at this subject and, and sort of the life of the church, uh, primarily about leadership and, and how we as a church lead, uh, but also about membership. Because there's a, a reciprocity in order to lead. In order to do that, you kind of got to know who you're supposed to lead. And so we look at this passage in, in, in 1 Peter 5. First, first Peter, if, if, if you remember, uh, Peter is writing to the diaspora. It's Asia Minor or Turkey. And, and so it's this collection of, of Gentile and Jewish Christians that have been scattered throughout the region because of the persecution that's coming upon them. 
And so Peter is pastorally writing this letter to encourage them, to point them to Jesus, to to situate them in grace amidst their, their sufferings and their trials and their pains. And he comes to the end of the letter. He says, I exhort you, I exhort the elders. And so in that, he's beginning to say, this is, this is important. We need to give our attention to this. He's, he, he's lending itself in terms of working towards this priority of what it means to be the church and how we're to do this life together. Doing church, being the church, uh, embracing this life together as God has called us is a challenge. It's a challenge. We are broken people. We acknowledged that earlier in our affirmation of faith. And it's in our brokenness that we get on one another's nerves. And it's in our brokenness that we have divisions and we have fights. We, we see ourselves as we are not as lovely as we ought to be. The brokenness of the church is part of my own story. And how I drifted away from the church... And, and walked away from it in my latter years in high school and into college because I didn't see people living as the way Jesus said we should live. And in my own arrogance and in my own pride, I thought I would be the arbiter of that truth. But then His graciousness and His kindness and people who acknowledge their brokenness but of their desperate need for God's grace, the Lord continued to work in my life to draw me back. Little did I know he would situate me serving as a pastor of a church. There was an irony there that I wasn't ready for. And in that, what I've continued to learn as a pastor of the church is we are imperfect. I am imperfect. I am, I am messy. And relationships are messy. And it doesn't take much to, to introspection to consider what's going on, and we can acknowledge those realities. But the thing that's so interesting about God's church, and what we want to see this morning, is, is the church, in a sense, is supposed to be countercultural. The, the church is messy like the rest of the world. It is broken like the rest of the world. It is imperfect like much of the rest of the world because we struggle with sin. But like Unlike the rest of the world, we acknowledge those things and we look to the one who is whole and the one who is perfect and the one who is cleaning up our mess by redeeming us through his laying down his life for all of that mess and all of that brokenness and and all of that thing in order to create something incredibly beautiful that that embodies and reflects the countercultural values of his kingdom. And that's the type of church we want to be. And it's the type of church that we long to become. And one of the ways the Apostle Paul says that we do that is through submitting one to another as we submit to Christ. That is not a value of submitting to one another and submitting to authority that is particularly popular in our culture. One uh, social commentator said this about the American culture. Individualism is a calm and considered feeling 
which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of family and friends. With this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after himself. Those words were written 150 years ago. To say it a little differently, Charles Taylor, the philosopher in his book, um, A Secular Age, talked about how our culture is marked by an age of authenticity. And you would think that authenticity was intended to be something good, but it's not. What he is noting is that as this individualism, as our culture has gone on from those 150 years when that quote was originally made, that Charles Taylor has noted that we've become a law unto ourself and that we have begun to define truth in our own attempts, in our own selves. So much so that in our age of authenticity, the desire that prevails in our age is to find one's deepest or authentic self. And then to express that in the world. And the way that that deepest or authentic self is discerned and expressed in the world is by foregoing the values of family, friends, politics, and religion. Now, what I mean by that and where I'm going is that in this age of authenticity, the idea is you be you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Friends, we live in a culture, and, and some of us have even gone down that path, are still pursuing that path. And what we find is that when you remove standards and objectives and things like truth and how God defines us by His Word, what you find is we are constantly tossed by our whims and emotions and social currents that begin to define who we are. And the Lord knew this. And the Lord knew this would happen, and He knew this wasn't good for His people. And so, so long ago, He set in motion a plan to redeem a covenant people to Himself, His church. And in His church, He, he has given us good gifts. The title this morning comes from verse 7. It says, We are to cast all our anxieties on Jesus because He cares for you. And so this morning as we're celebrating the ordination and installation of, of, of three new officers in our church, as we are looking at this moment of our leadership and we're looking at what it means to be members of a church, what I want us to remember is that this is the way Jesus loves His church. Jesus cares for us. And this is the part of the way he has gifted us with these things. And as we look at, at what it means to, to live out the countercultural values of the gospel in our current moment, we're going to see the way that Jesus has called us to do that is, is through receiving these gifts, through the way he is caring for us. 
He cares for us by giving us shepherds and servants. He cares for us by giving us himself. And he cares for us by giving us one another. So he gives us shepherds and servants, himself and one another. Now let's look first at the, what it means that he has given us shepherds and servants. The reason I chose those two words, other than the simple fact of alliteration, is in the shepherds we're talking about elders. And you see in this passage, it says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That word shepherd and elder is essentially interchangeable in the New Testament when it comes to the leadership of the church. And that speaks to those who are overseers, those who have been entrusted to to lead God's flock. You don't readily find servants in here, but there is an idea and, and an interwoven assumption of service within what it means to be a leader within the church. But even in that, what we also know is that back in Acts 6, when situations had arisen in the church, that there was another office in addition to elder that was established, the deacons, the diakonos, which was simply the servants. And, 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 and men, Thomas and Matt and Stephen, the reality is we always have to remember ourselves as servants and shepherds. Servants and shepherds, we're, we're not called into these spaces to think too highly of ourselves, to, to lo- lord over an influence or an authority in, in a heavy-handed way. No, we must consider the way that Jesus was our good shepherd, and He laid down His life for us, that Jesus was our servant who came and washed the feet of His disciples. It's really a humbling reality when I sit here today and was reflecting on this. I was ordained as a teaching elder in our denomination when I was 28 years old. I shudder (laughs) to think of the foolishness that I brought to that office way back when. And so this morning as I was reflecting on what it means for God to give good gifts to his church like shepherds and servants, here were a few things that I reflected on from this passage from my own failures. First, you must remember your primary identity. Remember your primary identity. This flock that we're called to serve and to shepherd, God reminds us, Peter reminds us that it is Jesus' flock. It is God's flock. It is not ours. We are simply entrusted with it. The high order of caring for God's people, of coming along and moving into those intimate spaces of their life and and, and serving them and shepherding them and leading them and knowing them and and tending to them and being there for them. What a privilege that is. But when we think about it, what we have to remember is we're a part of that flock. And so the primary identity we must remember is that we belong to God. That I am His child. That I am beloved. That I have been united with Christ in His death and His resurrection by His grace and through faith. 
and that he is working out a marvelous work in me. And it's so critical that I remember that that is my primary identity because there are lots of things that happen in the church that want to elevate my own understanding of myself. The attaboys. The good jobs. And it, and it can puff up. The flip side is, there's also the, boy, you really blew that one. And I can have a, a devaluing of myself and a, a lower self-esteem. And through all the service of the good and the bad, the difficult and the joyous, I must remember that I am called beloved by Christ. That I am cherished and loved and that God sent His own Son for me. And so all of us must remember that, especially our leaders. The second is, is this. We boast in Christ and not in ourselves. If our identity is in Him, anything good that happens in this church is a result of Jesus working through His Spirit in our lives. I can take no credit for it whatsoever. And it's interesting when we sit in here and we consider Peter and he's writing these words and the very fact that Peter writing to men who were elders in the diaspora and in Asia Minor, Peter says, a fellow elder. Peter doesn't stand on his own merits. He's saying, I am one amongst many. I'm a fellow elder. I serve Jesus alongside you. He goes on and he gets into verse 2. He says, we are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, but not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. We don't boast in ourselves, we boast in Jesus. He's telling us we have to embody those countercultural values. We, we don't uh, live and operate in the church as we would in the marketplace or on the sports field or wherever it is. There was a question that one of my children posed to me once. We were talking about how daddy loves mommy and, and how God has called daddy to be the head of the house. And one of the girls said, well, what does that mean? And we were trying to figure that out with them. And one of them said, well, that means you die first. <laughs> and, and there's something humbling about that reality. And what it means is that if we're understanding who we are in Christ, that's what it means to be a leader, to be a shepherd and a servant in God's churches, that we die first. We die to ourselves. We pick up our cross and we crucify the old man so that God could work in his grace in our lives the mess and brokenness and sinfulness that entangles us so that we could boast in Christ. That we would never forget those struggles that we had, but they would be an opportunity to empathize with those who are going through it. To say, I know it's not easy, I know it's not fun. But there is hope because Christ is at work. And we simply are one beggar telling another beggar where we found food. So we boast in Christ and not ourselves. 
Next, in, in looking at this and the, those very realities of how we're to serve and not under compulsion but willingly and this whole idea of, of tending to the flock is that we earn relational credibility before we exercise authority. We earn relational credibility before we exercise authority. This year has been, in my time here, it's been a challenge because for about a year of it, you all disappeared. <laughs> we were in a pandemic. And then when we came back, we were all wearing masks. I, I sincerely desire to know your names. It's not easy to remember when you're not here and I can't see two-thirds of your face. And so the idea that I say that is that I'm looking for a little grace, but I'm also saying that I want to earn relational capital with you. That I can show up and, and speak something, but if you don't know that I care, you don't care how much I know. And so, men, we have to move into one, these lives of those whom we've been called to serve and to shepherd. We need to know their names. We need to know their stories. We need to understand where they came from and what their dreams are and what the, the pain of their brokenness is. And we need to sit. And we just need to listen. And as we do that and we understand, the Lord will give us opportunity to speak truth into love and exercising His authority so that they could be made much of, so that they would know Jesus. We need to consider these things because so often we think that there's this positional authority that comes with it. And anyone who's studied any sort of leadership book will know that positional authority is one of the lowest forms of authority. The relational authority that we gain over time and in experience in relationships far surpasses that which we're just given through a mere position. So we must remember our identity. We must boast in Christ. We must earn relational credibility and capital before exercising authority. But, but lastly, and this is the one that I've stink at the most. We, we need to show gospel, goodness, and grace in big and little things. We must show and minister and live out the gospel and, and show grace in big and little things. That could be a tremendous moment where we are excited and, and, and stepping into that person's life and, and, and celebrating something. It may be a tremendous pain. And for the fifth and sixth and seventh time, we are in a difficult situation of the brokenness and messiness of life. And we must remember our shepherd who has been kind to us and gentle with us. And he has shown us gospel goodness in our struggles. And so we must remember to, in big things, show big grace. And in little things, still show big grace. Because we need it. Now friends, from there, I want us to understand that, that, that as much as God has given us shepherds and servants, He's given us His Son, Jesus. And as He is writing to these folks, as He's writing to these elders, He calls their attention away from the pains of this world, the trials of this world, the, the struggles of life. 
And in verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, towards the end, he says in verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Each of us must continue to look to Jesus in the difficulty of this world. For those shepherds and servants, even more so. But all of us, he's given us the gift of Jesus. And if we're going to embody and live out and express the countercultural values of redemption in this world, we have to continue to look to Jesus. We don't just look to Jesus when it's easy. We don't just look to Jesus when it's glorious. We look to Jesus when it's hard. Because it's in Him that we, we see the fullness of His grace. It's in Him we see forgiveness and receive mercy. And we see ultimately that there is a plan. That He's making all things new. That He's making all that is sad come untrue. That Jesus is going to come back and He's going to right all the wrongs. We have to continue in the places of wilderness and isolation that we may find ourselves, look forward with an expectant hope that Jesus is King. And that's why we need the third one, the, the gift of one another. The gift of one another. In verse 8, which is often one that's quoted, it says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. I've watched enough planet Earth to know that. The reality is that one is separated from the herd, the predator comes in. So often what has happened through this pandemic is that, that we have distanced ourselves from the local church that we called home. We've distanced ourselves because of a disagreement. We've distanced ourselves because of a decision we didn't like. We've distanced ourselves over a preference. We've distanced ourselves over politics. We've distanced ourselves over a theological point that may be of a minor order. And in distancing ourselves, what happens is we can become a law unto ourselves because we don't have one another speaking gospel goodness and showing us grace into those situations. And so often what happens is that we get picked off by the adversary. We turn on our spouse, we turn on our children, we turn on our friends, we turn on one another in our marketplaces, in, our, in the places of work. We just start writing alternative narratives that are juicy and align with our own agendas. And we begin to make everyone else in the world at fault and ourselves the victim. And if that goes on long enough, what happens is we become numb to the gospel. That's the way the enemy works. But we need one another. As it says in Hebrews 10, 
Let us not forsake the gathering together, as is the habit of some, but let us stir up one another to love and good deeds, and all the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. We have to stir up one another to love and good deeds. We have to speak truth into one another's life. We have to call one another to repentance and and to speak the gospel over them and to call them into obedience. We have to remind them that Jesus is at work and that Jesus is victorious. Jesus is in the midst of their brokenness and in the midst of their suffering. We have to do that for one another. And so as much as he has given us shepherds and servants, and as much as us, he has given us his son, it's in his son saving and redeeming a covenant people to do life together in this odd thing called the church. That God, as we looked last week, shows the glory of his plan to a dying culture by people who are living under the authority of Jesus. The last thing on membership that I'll just sort of throw out there is you won't find a Bible verse that talks about church membership. It's simply not in there. But what you will find is this thread talking about the flock of God. Now, church members, visitors, for the sake of our shepherds and servants, for the sake sake of our staff and our pastors, It's really difficult to care for you if we don't know if you consider yourself part of this flock. It's really difficult to care for you if we never see you and you don't return our emails or our text messages or our carrier pigeons, whatever it may be. And so in that, my encouragement to you is that if you want to to, to receive the fullness of what it means to belong to God's covenant community, this this countercultural expression of redemption called the church, then we have to do this together. And these men are going to come up in a few minutes, and they're going to take some vows about what they are vowing before God and you that they are going to do. And there are other men that are going to come up here who've taken those vows already, and that they're going to be reminded of those things, of what they're called to serve. It is a pleasure to serve you, but we need you to help us. And the immortal words of the movie Jerry Maguire, help us help you. <laughs> and we do that because of the help of Christ, our chief shepherd. And so he loves us, and he cares for his church, and he has given us the gift of grace, and he has given us the gift of shepherds and servants. He has given us the gift of himself. He has given us the gift of one another so that we would reflect his redemptive love to a world that needs the transformation that comes through the gospel. Let's pray. Our great God and King, we thank you for the church. Lord, you don't give up on your bride, and you continue to sanctify her and wash her by your word. Lord, we need a lot of scrubbing. And so I pray that you would continue to do that in my life and in our life. Lord, that we would do that for one another so that we would be more fully who you want us to be and we would be the beauty of the church as we ought to be. So Lord, give us a spirit of repentance. 
give us a spirit of faith. And Lord, help us to obey. Lord, help us to know how much we need one another, that we need Jesus. And we thank you for those shepherds and servants you've called, Lord, to lead and to serve. Lord, we thank you for this day in the life of our church because we get to worship you in the ways that you have ordered our realities. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.